Good morning. Our headlines today and then there were four. Congressman Mike Johnson becomes the fourth Republican to try to win the House Speaker's gavel after Representative Emmer dropped out of the race. A former Trump lawyer pleads guilty to a felony in Georgia. It's over encouraging false statements about the state's 2020 election. What does her plea deal mean about the far-reaching RICO charges brought against former President Trump and others? Find out more from a legal analyst. Demands for fuel and humanitarian aid into Gaza are growing nearly two weeks after the IDF asked civilians to evacuate the northern strip. Now the UN says time is running out. The UN has called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, but the U.S. says such a move is a win for the Hamas terror group. We have the latest on the U.S. response to the war in Israel. The Hamas terrorist organization has tentacles in America. We explore the public-facing organizations of the group and their methods of expanding influence. Social media giant Meta is facing a lawsuit from over 30 attorneys general. The company is accused of intentionally harming young children and teenagers. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, October 25th. And I have to say, I'm really looking forward to your interview with the counterterrorism expert. Yeah, Cynthia Farahat, she makes a really good point in her book, The Secret Apparatus, about the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the Hamas organization's parent movement. And she says that terrorists, when we think of them, normally we think of caves or like an African wilderness, but actually these terrorist groups like Hamas are operating right here in the United States through lobbying and pushing their propaganda. That's alarming. Um, we will definitely, uh, we're looking out for that one. But first, we're starting out with some political news. House Republicans have picked Congressman Mike Johnson for of Louisiana as their new speaker nominee. This after Representative Emmer dropped his bid. Here's a congressman reacting to his nomination. America is the last best hope of man on the earth. Abraham Lincoln said it, Ronald Reagan used to remind us all the time, and we're here to remind you of that again. We're going to restore your trust in what we do here. You're going to see a new form of government, and we are going to move this quickly. This group here is ready to govern, and we're going to govern well. We're going to do what's right by the people. And I believe the people are going to reward that next year. But we have a lot of big priorities ahead of us right now. The world is on fire. We stand with our ally, Israel. Johnson is a conservative constitutional law attorney. He bills himself as a bridge builder between various Republican factions. The Northwest Louisiana district he represents is one of the poorest in the country. Right now, it's unclear if Johnson can secure the 217 votes needed. Republicans are under intense pressure to pick a new speaker. It's been three weeks since House members ousted Congressman Kevin McCarthy in a historic vote. And right now, the House cannot conduct any business without a speaker. The House will hold a speaker vote today at noon. A majority whip Tom Emmer's short-lived House speaker candidacy was over in a matter of hours. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and on lawmakers' reactions. The number three House Republican won the nomination earlier Tuesday, only to withdraw hours later due to opposition in the party. Emmer dropped his bid after former President Donald Trump urged Republicans to oppose him. Trump wrote on Truth Social, 
I have many wonderful friends wanting to be Speaker of the House, and some are truly great warriors. Rhino Tom Emmer, who I do not know well, is not one of them. He never respected the power of a Trump endorsement or the breadth and scope of MAGA, Make America Great Again. Trump reacted to the news of Emmer's withdrawal after leaving court in New York, saying he believes his comments against Emmer had an impact. He was a MAGA. Most people are MAGA in the Republican Party. They want to see our country be great again. So I disagreed with him on a lot of things over the years. And Emmer had recently dodged a question from a CNN reporter on whether he supports Trump in the Republican primary for president, saying he was going to concentrate on the race for House Speaker. Unlike many in his party, Emmer voted to certify President Biden's 2020 victory over Trump following the January 6th Capitol breach. Emmer was also facing opposition from about two dozen House members. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene says she likes Emmer as a person, but couldn't support him as speaker. He voted with the Democrats to overturn President Trump's ban on transgenders in the military. Um, is, he has a voting record I couldn't support, and most Republicans, conservative Republicans, don't support. Representative Mike Gallagher likened the struggles of Republicans to choose a speaker to a failing sports team. Mr. Representative from Green Bay, the Republican representative from Green Bay, it pains me to ask this question, but I'm not sure who sucks at team sports more right now, the Packers or the House Republican Caucus. But Congressman Ralph Norman says he could care less about how the Republicans look now. This is a Democrat process. What's great about this is get 217 in the room so that when we go to the floor, we'll be united. Now, it's a challenge. That's fine. This is the third most powerful man uh, in the country. Could be president. You've got to make the right choice. Representative Mario Diaz Balart doesn't want to hear anything about coalition government. The congressman says Republicans must keep control of the House. And we can't give that majority up um, because it's all we control and it's the only thing holding back the Biden woke agenda, right? While Congressman Roger Williams is optimistic, despite the difficulties. You know, and 217 is hard to get to. But somebody, we got somebody in that room, I firmly believe, can get to 217. The full House will vote on a speaker at noon on Wednesday, with Congressman Mike Johnson as the latest speaker nominee. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Trump is accused of increasing his asset values based on arbitrary numbers. His ex-attorney Michael Cohen attested to that during his testimony today. This in the New York civil fraud case against Trump and his two adult sons. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards heard more of the testimony. Before entering a packed New York courtroom Tuesday, ex-attorney Michael Cohen and former President Trump gave these comments to reporters. And as far as my credibility, I don't know how many times I've said it. I'm actually glad that I have the press here today. My credibility should not be in question. In the courtroom, Trump calmly took notes and occasionally spoke to his attorney as Cohen revealed the inner workings of the Trump organization. Cohen testified before Congress in 2019 that Trump inflated his wealth. It is believed this testimony sparked the investigation into Trump's finances. On the stand Tuesday, he said that he worked as Trump's special counsel and that part of his job involved business development. One of his duties was to work with the chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. 
He said the two of them were tasked with increasing the total assets based on a number the former president arbitrarily elected. He specified that the number was whatever number Mr. Trump told us. And that if Trump didn't think the valuations were high enough, they had to keep working on the assets until they achieved the number. Other testimony involved specific details about how they crunched the numbers. Trump's attorneys objected to some of the testimony, but the presiding judge often overruled their objections. This case, by any other judge, this case would have been over a long time ago. We did nothing wrong, and that's the proof. In other testimony Tuesday, the state called William Kelly to the stand. Kelly is special counsel at Mazar's accounting firm, the firm that reviewed the Trump organization's financial statements for 30 years. They found no discrepancies. There was nothing wrong with the he testified that the firm discontinued its services after they met with Attorney General Letitia James. She told them Trump's CFO could not be trusted to provide accurate numbers. He then advised the firm to end the relationship because he was concerned that the Attorney General would sue them. Kelly also testified that the firm's review of all financial statements followed applicable accounting standards. A one-time lawyer for former President Trump is pleading guilty to a criminal charge in Georgia. Jenna Ellis said that when representing Trump, she relied on information provided by other lawyers but didn't fact-check it. Former President Trump reacts afterwards. Watch. She was a big, big fan of that. And in order to do something, I guess she made a deal. It's too bad to see it. Now we're bringing in Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, to unpack former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis's guilty plea. Paul, it's great to have you with us this morning. Do you think that DA Willis was able to accept this plea deal because she doesn't think that her RICO charge would stand? Well, anytime you have a plea deal, there's always uh, charges that are not uh, followed through. And I think the RICO charge was just basically a bargaining chip uh, in the mix here. and uh, But nevertheless, uh, Jenna Ellis did plead guilty to uh, one felony count. That's a serious account of aiding and abetting, giving false statements to the Georgia Senate, along with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so th that's the key issue here. And the question is, you know, Rudy Giuliani will now be implicated because she has agreed to testify about other people involved in the uh, election as much as she knows about it. So walk us through the process that a prosecutor would go through here. Wouldn't it be better to pursue a RICO charge and, and get this to stick against Ellis and others as opposed to getting plea deals? Or is it better for them to start yeah. just accumulating these guilty pleas? Well, I think it's a, a strategic decision to start getting the guilty pleas. As you know, uh, we have now three guilty pleas from three attorneys. Uh, Sydney Powell, Ken Cheesebro, and, and now uh, Jenna Ellis. But the key factor here is uh, without the RICO charge, the RICO charge was to connect them all together with the 18 other defendants, including Donald Trump. And since uh, that wasn't found uh, to be uh, a wrongful conduct here, uh, they will have to go to trial to prove that unless somebody does plead guilty to a RICO charge. But I don't see that happening. So keep in mind, uh, what she pled guilty to has nothing whatsoever to do with Donald Trump. He, he, he wasn't mentioned in the plea or in the charge that was against uh, Jenna, Jenna Ellis. What about testimony now that they've pled guilty? 
Well, sure. Uh, they, they, they did agree as part of the plea agreement that they will provide uh, testimony as needed uh, for all the other defendants. Uh, and I think in this case, with respect to Jeddah Alice, uh, the only one that may be in some trouble would be Rudy Giuliani, because that's who she was working with in terms of going before the Georgia Senate and, and uh, giving information about what they claim were, were uh, fraudulent votes, mail-in ballots, uh, those who were in registered vote and so forth. And she said those statements were false, and that is the felony count that was brought. But again, that does not uh, implicate uh, Donald Trump in this because he was relying on information he got from these attorneys. So, uh, you know, he, he, he's still not being char charged with this particular one of giving false statement to the Georgia Senate because he didn't uh, talk before the Georgia Senate. So, Paul, all these guilty pleas are adding up, and some saying that's going to speed up the trial here, but it's still unlikely that it'll take place before the 2024 election. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Uh, I think uh, it, it uh, probably will be uh, tried before uh, the election if, in fact, uh, the uh, judge sticks to a trial date and uh, there's no uh, other um, uh, motions to dismiss, et cetera. So, uh, if anything... I think it will be speeded up a bit if if we have people starting to plead guilty here. So, uh, but you never know how these things work, especially since there's, you know, three other criminal trials that are being uh, tried in in uh, the early spring of 2024. So that may, uh, you know, push some of these trial dates further down the road. But uh, hopefully, uh, they won't interfere with the election because it looks like Donald Trump has got great attorneys uh, will find that he's innocent in these cases. It's great hearing from you. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Stay with us. Concerns of a health crisis in Gaza are growing among UN officials. They are demanding fuel for hospitals and waterworks be let in. More on Israel's response. NSC spokesman John Kirby extended his sympathies to the family of a fallen Israeli-American IDF soldier and says a ceasefire in Gaza would only benefit Hamas. The Pentagon says 13 separate attacks were carried out on U.S. troops in the Middle East last week. It's blaming Iran for bringing terrorist groups under its umbrella. More on that when we come back. Good to have you back. Leader of the terrorist group Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, met with Hamas and Islamic Jihad officials this morning. A statement by the Iran-backed organization did not mention where the meeting took place, only that an assessment was made of what parties must do to secure victory for Gaza. The Hezbollah press office also released the first statement by its leaders since the start of the war, a handwritten letter commending those who died fighting Israel. Concerns of Hezbollah joining the war are stoking fears of a wider conflict in the region. And more humanitarian aid entered Gaza last night. The fourth convoy of trucks was reportedly carrying food, water and medicine. The Palestine Red Crescent Society shared photos of boxes being unloaded in a residential area and outside a U.N. school. 
It's been close to two weeks since Israel's military asked Gazans to evacuate the northern strip. Israel has evacuated its northern and southern communities under threat. Fears of a health crisis over a lack of water are growing among UN officials, along with demands for fuel at hospitals and water desalination plants. Israel is not allowing fuel into Gaza over concerns it would be stolen by Hamas. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the dilemma and the crisis in the Middle East. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, warned Tuesday on X it would have to halt operations in Gaza Wednesday night if it doesn't get fuel. Israel's military countered with a post of their own, suggesting that UNRWA ask Hamas if you can have some. Aerial footage shows fuel tanks the IDF says are inside Gaza, holding over 130,000 gallons of fuel. Leaflets dropped in Gaza Tuesday by IDF ask residents to contact them with any information about hostages being held by Hamas. The IDF is guaranteeing confidentiality, maximum security, and a financial reward to those able to provide it. The Israeli military says it identified two rocket launches from Syria that landed in open areas late Tuesday and had responded with artillery fire at the sources, followed by an airstrike on Syrian army infrastructure and mortar launchers early Wednesday. It did not accuse Syria's army of firing the two rockets, which set off air raid sirens in the Golan Heights. In the West Bank, Israel says some of its forces came under fire on an overnight raid and reacted with a drone attack. Israel's military also says it thwarted a seaborne infiltration attempt by Hamas overnight and that it had struck a terrorist weapons warehouse and tunnel exit on the Gaza coast. Recent clashes between Israel and the terrorist group Hezbollah have troops along the Israel-Lebanon border on high alert. Iran, which backs both Hezbollah and Hamas, has warned Israel to stop its offensive on Gaza. Israel is warning Iran and Lebanon and other terrorists not to enter the war. President Biden and Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman spoke by phone on Tuesday and agreed on broader diplomacy. The White House says the aim is to maintain stability across the region and prevent the conflict from expanding. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The United Nations Secretary General said yesterday that Israeli airstrikes and the blockade of Gaza represent collective punishment of the Palestinian people and called for an immediate ceasefire. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest U.S. response to Israel's war with the Hamas terror group. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Israel's actions in response to the unprecedented terror attack on Israelis, including women and children, have violated international law. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby addressed the talk of a ceasefire. We're going to continue to make sure Israel has the tools and the capabilities that they need to defend themselves. And as I think you've heard us say, um, a ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas. Kirby also extended sympathies to the family of Omer Balva, an Israeli-American dual citizen from Rockville, Maryland. The IDF soldier was killed on Monday at Israel's northern border by anti-tank missile fire. Certainly offer our deepest condolences to the family. That's, that's news no, no mom and dad ever want to get. Um, I don't have any communication to, to speak to one way or the other, but again, our, our, our thoughts and prayers go to the family. Kirby also discussed Tuesday the possibility of evacuating Americans from the Middle East in case the Israel-Hamas war spreads into a broad regional conflict. It would be imprudent and irresponsible if we didn't have folks thinking through a broad range of contingencies and possibilities, and, um, and, uh, and certainly evacuations are, are one of those things. But Kirby stressed there are currently no active efforts to evacuate Americans from the region beyond charter flights out of Israel. 
The National Security Council spokesman also said the U.S. is deeply concerned by the potential for future attacks on American troops. He estimated there had been around a dozen such attacks over the last several days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Tuesday that 33 Americans have been confirmed dead after the Hamas terror attack on Israel on October 7th. Ten Americans are still missing. An unknown number of them are presumed to be held hostage in Gaza. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Pentagon officials say U.S. troops were attacked 13 times within the past week at outposts across the Middle East. The attacks were carried out with both rockets and drones. The Pentagon says troops in Iraq bore the brunt of the aggression with 10 separate incidents reported. U.S. forces in Syria faced three attacks during that time with two dozen American soldiers wounded in two separate drone attacks. U.S. Central Command says all 24 service members have returned to active duty since. Disturbing news emerges from the war between Israel and Hamas terrorists. A recorded phone call from a Hamas terrorist celebrating with his family about killing innocent civilians. And today's Jason Perry has the update. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. So what's going through the minds of the Hamas terrorists? And how could people commit such gruesome acts on innocent civilians? Apparently, some terrorists think killing innocent people makes them heroes. On Tuesday, the Israeli Defense Forces released what they describe as a recorded conversation between a Hamas terrorist and his family members. This phone call was also played on Tuesday at the United Nations Security Council. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also addressed the Security Council and gave this warning, which comes after 13 different attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East in the past week, according to the Pentagon. The United States does not seek conflict with Iran. We do not want this war to widen. But if Iran or its proxies attack U.S. personnel anywhere, make no mistake, we will defend our people, we will defend our security, swiftly and decisively. The war between Israel and Hamas continues to draw attention from other countries. On Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Macron suggested that the international coalition currently fighting against ISIS terrorists should fight against Hamas terrorists as well. Jason Perry, NTD News. Highly concerning, yeah. And uh, according to NBC, they found documents on Hamas that uh, militants that po uh, pointed at that they were targeting specifically elementary schools and youth centers. So that's also something that is mind-boggling. Yeah. Right? Meanwhile, hiding beneath schools themselves. In That's right. Tunnels. But then, the, right, these Hamas, they recruit children. So these, these people probably grew up seeing all these gruesome images all their life, and that does something to desensitize them, I would, I would assume. And speaking of recruitment and information here, we hear a viewpoint on the conflict in the Middle East, one that delves into the role indoctrination is playing in anti-Jewish sentiment and violence. This is what James Gorey, author of The China Crisis and a contributor to the Epic Times, told me. Have a look. There is no 
solving this until the money that flows to Hamas in Palestine, in, in, the, in Gaza, rather, um, is, is not used to indoctrinate young kids uh, from the ages of four and five about how to kill a Jew and, and how to destroy and kill and hate, and hate, all that kind of stuff. So the money that flows to Hamas has to go to education proper, good education, and schools and hospitals, and uh, there has to be a culture of tolerance, not a culture of hate. That is not happening under Hamas. So I'd say the first thing to do to solve this would be to get rid of Hamas, which is what the Israelis are trying to do. Ages four to five, that is incredible. Because children have such impressionable minds and they're not able to discern certain things at that age. So whatever they're fed is naturally gonna leave a big impact on them. Of course, of course. And knowing the history of China, for example, back then during the Cultural Revolution, they were able to make these kids turn on their parents if they hear them say something against the Communist Party back then. Even though they knew that they would basically send them into death, they thought it was the right thing to do, and they did it. So um, that just goes to show how much it can change um, the judgment of a child. Yeah, it can affect a whole generation. And that Red Guard was a big instrument that we saw in the Cultural Revolution right. carrying out that destruction. Stay with us here. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing the Biden administration for actions they're taking at the border. What's going on there? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis orders a shutdown of a pro-Palestinian student organization. The state is the first to implement such a move. Social media giant Meta is facing a lawsuit from over 30 attorneys general. The company is accused of intentionally harming young children and teenagers. Find out what this could mean for Meta after the break. Welcome back. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing the Biden administration He's accusing the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection of cutting razor wire positioned at the Texas-Mexico border. The lawsuit says the government is illegally destroying Texas property and undermining the state's ability to stop illegal entry. The lawsuit also mentions that the DHS itself said the wire serves as a deterrent to prevent illegal crossings. The suit further notes that the wire was installed in September when the U.S. saw record illegal immigrant crossings. A DHS spokesman told Fox News the agency does not comment on pending litigation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has ordered colleges in the state to shut down a pro-Palestinian student organization. The move marks Florida as the first U.S. state to ban students for justice in Palestine, whose national leadership backed the Hamas attack on Israel. Officials say the group is active in at least two Florida universities, the Universities of North Florida in Jacksonville and Florida State University in Tallahassee. Growing tensions between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian students have led to harassment and assaults at U.S. universities. Students for Justice in Palestine received nationwide criticism for calling the attack a historic win for the Palestinian resistance. It also called for a day of resistance on October 12th at over 200 campuses across the U.S. and Canada. Dozens of states sued Instagram parent Meta on Tuesday. They accused the social media giant of harming young users' mental health. Here with us to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Don, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Doing good. Give us the details on this lawsuit to start. 
Sure. Uh, so this federal lawsuit was filed in California by 33 attorneys general and eight other attorneys general sued in various other state courts around the country. So, you know, this is a massive multi-state lawsuit. Uh, they're saying that Meta's products are highly addictive uh, through features like infinite news feeds and frequent notifications that demand a user's attention. Uh, they're saying that this is harming minors and has contributed even to a mental health crisis in the United States. So, so some heavy accusations there, but on top of, of all that, uh, they're saying Meta's Instagram is linked to depression, anxiety, insomnia in kids. Um, you know, the, the suit says uh, Meta isn't being honest uh, with the public and that it intentionally and knowingly induced young children and teenagers into addiction. Wow, so what about the other side then? How did Meta respond to this? Yeah, Meta's reaction to this lawsuit uh, was disappointment. Uh, the company's position was that uh, the, uh, the attorneys general you know, could have chosen any other path uh, than lawsuits uh, to productively work with them. And in the past, Meta's chief executive, Mark Zuckerberg, defended his company's handling of content. He says, it's not the case uh, in any way that uh, Meta pr prioritizes profit over uh, people's safety and well-being. Uh, but as for the lawsuits, uh, Meta could face civil penalties of $1,000 to $50,000 for each violation of various state laws. And Evelyn, that could add up quickly given the millions of young children and teenagers who use Instagram. And let me just point this out as well. Children, you know, have long been an appealing demographic for businesses because they hope to attract them as consumers when they're more impressionable uh, to gain brand loyalty. Yeah, and it's already hard enough to fall asleep sometimes. And when these kids are up just looking at these screens and just constantly being stimulated, it can present a challenge there. But anything else for us, Don? Sure, it's one more thing. Uh, it seems like over 300,000 student loan borrowers received bills that are actually wrong. Many of those monthly bills overcharged borrowers. Uh, the Department of Education says it's working to fix the problem. Uh, borrowers affected by the mistakes will be given forbearance until the issue is resolved. Uh, and so to check the status of your loan, you can log into your account at studentaid.gov. Um, just a quick update from me. Well, thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you. And we have some new information about the off-duty pilot accused of trying to shut down the jet engines of a commercial flight. Court documents say the pilot told police he was suffering a nervous breakdown. Here's the story. Court documents say an off-duty pilot who tried to cut the engine power of an Air Alaska jet mid-flight over the weekend had taken psychedelic mushrooms two days before boarding and hadn't slept for 40 hours. That pilot, Joseph David Emerson, appeared in Oregon State Court for the first time on Tuesday. He pleaded not guilty to state charges through his attorney. They included 83 counts of attempted murder, one for every crew member and passenger on the plane besides himself, and a single count of endangering the aircraft, which was bound for San Francisco Sunday before it was diverted to Portland, Oregon. The flight crew told investigators that Emerson, who was sitting in a jump seat in the cockpit, tried to grab the fire suppression handles and that he came close to shutting down hydraulic operation and fuel to both engines of the plane. 
and was seconds away from turning it into a glider. Federal prosecutors said that after the cockpit incident, Emerson in wrist restraints tried to grab the handle of an emergency exit during the flight's descent, but was stopped by a flight attendant. A court document later said Emerson told police he'd been depressed for the past six months. He'd taken magic mushrooms for the first time and believed he was having a nervous breakdown. Medical research has shown that psilocybin, a naturally occurring hallucinogen found in certain mushroom varieties, commonly called magic mushrooms, to be beneficial as a treatment for anxiety, depression, and other mental disorders. Oregon is the first U.S. state to decriminalize psilocybin. Since 2020, it has legalized supervised therapeutic use for adults at least 21 years old. However, psilocybin remains strictly prohibited under federal law. Just ahead, propaganda, lobbying, and fundraising and education. Learn more about how the Hamas terrorist organization operates on U.S. soil. An author who's been tracking the group and its parent movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, brings us an expose. Israel is rejecting U.N. calls for a ceasefire and calling for the resignation of the U.N. Secretary General. Hear the full report. It's good to have you back with us. Hamas networks have been known to operate in the U.S. Let's get some insight into what they are doing and how Americans can protect themselves from harmful effects from them. We're bringing in live on the show Cynthia Farahat, the author of The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death, to discuss this. Good morning, Cynthia. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us how these Hamas supporters carry out their goals on U.S. soil? Uh, yes, so, so uh, they uh, Hamas is a, a symptom of a bigger problem, which is the Muslim Brotherhood. When we discuss Hamas, is like discussing a side effect of, of cancer rather than uh, the tumor itself, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, the founder of Hamas, of ISIS, of Al Qaeda, of Boko Haram, of uh, of of. Uh, of countless Islamic terrorist groups. It's the incubator of Islamic terrorism. The way Hamas operates is that it's basically a militant wing of the Muslim Brotherhood and what the Muslim Brotherhood calls the secret apparatus, which is the military apparatus. It's just one of its offshoots. And the way to protect ourselves is to uh, designate the incubator, the parent organization as a terrorist organ, as a terror group inside the United States. And this will forbid its operatives from either coming into the U.S. or freely operating. They should be considered just like ISIS, ISIL, Islamic State, or whatever you want to call it, and they should be considered uh, just as a criminal and as a destructive as Al-Qaeda, because they're almost the same people. So even with that designation, how would the U.S. root out these front organizations that operate in broad daylight that try as best they can to distance themselves from Hamas and others? So they can try to distance themselves all they want, but if you're an accountant of the mafia, you're still a member of the mafia. So whether you are not, if, if you're not holding an AK-47, 
but you are doing uh, the rest of the bidding, uh, you are still considered a member of the organization and belong in prison, that it should be criminalized and that would cut uh, just exactly the way we dealt with uh, MS-13. This is the same type of organization. We have fought uh, organized crime before and uh, we are not going to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, it's very important that they address this because this goes back to 1993 when the FBI wiretapped those Hamas activists in Philadelphia and they found that they were trying to improve their discussions and basically operate in the shadows saying things like, I swear by Allah that war is deception. They wanted to inevitably become more prominent if the U.S. were to designate Hamas as a terrorist organization instead of having all their organizations be shut down immediately. So what can Americans do to inform themselves and to pick up on any of this propaganda that they're seeing so the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and all its offshoots uh, they follow a very strict code and narrative so the way I personally identify them because they have become like you said very sophisticated the reason the FBI couldn't uh, uh, or the CIA or the Mossad or any intelligence agency intercept the crimes that took place on October 7th is because they have become incredibly sophisticated and in the way of counter surveillance. Uh, when you so this is the, I have discussed extensively in my book uh, how to be able to still discover them as law enforcement. As for the American people, their narrative is clear. Their narrative is. Uh, bigoted. It's uh, they agitate for division and for warfare. Uh, they are anti-Semitic and xenophobic and they hate Christians just as much as they hate the Jewish people. Um, there is a very clear narrative. They also adopt the grievance du jour. Uh, they, that's uh, something that they picked from the Soviet Union. They have been trained by ex-Nazis, by the way, uh, their leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's a fact, not an opinion. They've also been trained by, by uh, Soviet propagandists. That's also a fact, not an opinion. Um, so we should recognize their specific patterns in propaganda and that's how we identify them there are of course the useful idiots uh, but we will be able to clearly identify who's who from what they say well thank you so much for bringing this to light Cynthia Farhat the author of the secret apparatus the Muslim Brotherhood's industry of death thank you Israel is rejecting a UN call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And the Israeli foreign minister is calling for the resignation of the UN Secretary General over comments he made. Israel's foreign minister Eli Cohen told the UN Security Council that the war is not just Israel's, but a war of the free world. Cohen said, quote, how can you agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence? Cohen also canceled a scheduled meeting with U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres in protest over statements he made. Guterres said that Hamas attacks did not exist in a vacuum. As Israel fights Hamas, another enemy sits near Israel's northern border watching the events, a terrorist group that boasts it's thousands of times stronger than before. If it enters the fight, the war will change completely. Entity's Arlene Richards has more.
With Israel focusing on eliminating Hamas, a far more powerful terrorist group watches from beyond the northern border, Hezbollah. Hezbollah is by far much more powerful than Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Its, its military capacities are, I don't know, 10 times bigger than Hamas and Islamic Jihad together, combined. Avi Melamed is a former Israeli senior official and the author of Inside the Middle East. He says it's possible Hezbollah could attack Israel and join the war, though it's far from certain. If Hezbollah were to attack, the result could be devastating. Hezbollah is estimated to have 150,000 rockets. Hamas's rockets are made from pipes. Hezbollah's rockets include heavy missiles, long-range missiles, and high-precision missiles. It also has assault drones, cyber warfare capabilities, trained combat forces, including special units, intelligence gathering capabilities, and an independent communication system. If Hezbollah joins the war... This will inflict a very significant damage to the state of Israel. Missiles and rockets are deliberately targeting Israel's cities and infrastructure like harbors, airports, and so on. Israel will be able to intercept the rockets, or many of the rockets, but still, the amount of rockets and missile Hezbollah could launch are just simply enormous. Melamed says Israel won't be able to stop all those rockets. Hezbollah was founded in the early 1980s with the main goal of resisting Israel. It has even fought with Israel before in a month-long war in 2006 that left over a thousand Lebanese citizens dead. Since the recent Hamas terror attack, Israel has been exchanging gunfire with Hezbollah almost daily. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And the U.S. has been quietly urging Israel not to engage in a full-blown war with Hezbollah. Right. Um, well, that is quite concerning, knowing now how, how, how much military they have. And apparently, after the 2006 conflict, some analysts say they have built up significantly, again, um, in terms of military force. Yeah, and no one wants a wider conflict there, and obviously that is one of the reasons why military hardware like carrier strike groups of the U.S. are in the Mediterranean. We're going to go to break now. The Israel-Hawass war has displaced thousands of families under constant threat of rocket attacks. We hear some stories for them when we come back. Good to have you back. More than 100,000 families in Israel have been displaced after the war started in October 7th. They have fled their homes under the constant threat of death and rocket attacks. We had terrorists all around us. Jennifer Kahani says she and her family woke up to the sound of explosions and missiles whizzing by. It was the morning of October 7 in the village where they live in southern Israel near the border with Gaza they soon realized they were under attack. We saw helicopters overhead. Um, we saw, we heard gunfire near us. Um, the terrorists were not far from where I live. Kahani and her five-year-old son What would you like? are two of the more than 500 displaced people from Israel's north and south who are now living at a Jerusalem hotel turned into a shelter. We take a hotel, house people inside, feed them, do activities. So we're trying to create some sort of normalcy. We will be hosting next week 1,200 people across the country. This Christian organization called the Fellowship of Israel-Related Ministries, or FIRM for short, has mobilized to help displaced people who had to flee their homes. They want to destroy Israel. 
Nisim Cohen and his wife Camilla live in northern Israel. Their son Joseph warned them a war was coming from the south after the October 7 attacks. Now they're also among the displaced. They say they fled their village located two kilometers from the border with Lebanon because they saw missiles launched by Hezbollah intercepted right above their heads by Israel's Iron Dome air defense system. According to the Israel Defense Forces, about 100,000 people have been evacuated from communities near both the Gaza and Lebanon borders due to the heightened risk of attacks. Some of them have lost their homes, a lot of them have lost loved ones. Some of them, I met a family just yesterday that their 18-year-old daughter, her best friend, is being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. So the trauma is really um, pervasive. As a group of Messianic Jews and, and Christian Arabs really working together, so how can we care for as many people as possible? Many of these families share a feeling of uncertainty right now. When will the war end? When will they be able to go home? Those are questions for which they don't have an answer right now. How did Israel become a state? Both Jews and Arabs have connections to the land. And today's Jack Bradley speaks with Israel's former chief archivist to explore the historical background of the Jewish state. In the early 20th century, the Ottoman Empire ruled the land where Israel is now located. At that time, the area was inhabited mostly by Arabs. The Ottoman Empire was on the losing side in World War I and ceased to exist after the war. Great Britain took over the lands that are now Israel and the Palestinian territories. In the Balfour Declaration of 1917, Britain expressed support for establishing a home for the Jewish people on that land. After World War II, more and more Jews migrated to the area. In 1947, the United Nations created a plan to partition the land into Jewish and Arab states. The Jews liked the plan, the Arabs did not. When the State of Israel was officially established in 1948, the surrounding Arab countries opposed it vehemently. The Jews and the Palestinians both equally have perfectly legitimate claims to the land. Ultimately, the only solution for the both of them both of them end up with states of their own alongside each other. Yaakov Luzowik is Israel's former chief archivist. He says the Jewish right to the land is rooted in history. The Jewish presence there dates back over 3,000 years. The Jewish people wrote their scriptures there. Jesus, who was a Jew, lived there. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world, and both the Bible and even the Quran refer to the Jewish people's ties to the land. There have been Jews in this land always, perhaps with the exception of a few years after the Crusaders conquered in 1099 and murdered all the Jews and then didn't let them back in. But other than that, there have been Jews here always. The surrounding Arab countries aren't convinced by this history. Many in those countries argue that in more recent history, the land was populated mostly by Arabs and that it's entirely their land. The conflicts continue to this day. Jack Bradley, NTD News. Very deep history surrounding Israel. That's right, and also a good crash course right here. So uh, think, uh, this is the part where we are kicking off the second part of our broadcast. How is communist China benefiting from the war in Israel? We speak to an expert to get his insight on Chinese interests in the Middle East. China removes its defense minister just months after he took office. He's the second senior CCP official to disappear this year. 
It didn't take long for Majority Whip Tom Ammer's House Speaker candidacy to come to a close, just hours actually. We have the details and lawmakers' reactions. The Senate holds a hearing on fentanyl precursor chemicals from China as overdose deaths in the U.S. pass 100,000 over the last year. Are courts hampering efforts to tackle homelessness? A legal foundation says the Ninth Circuit has gone too far. We speak to one of their senior attorneys. Good morning and welcome back. And for all us just joining now, welcome to NCD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning also from me again. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, October 25th, and let's get into our top stories. The U.S. is stepping up efforts to target a Hamas investment portfolio. The U.S. Treasury Department is working with Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and other Gulf Corporation Council nations. U.S. and Saudi officials met in Saudi Arabia yesterday for an emergency meeting of the Terrorist Financing Targeting Center. One U.S. official said the portfolio is likely valued at between $400 million and $1 billion and brings in significant revenue. Last week, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned those accused of managing the portfolio's assets. The Treasury Department says the portfolio includes companies operating under the guise of legitimate businesses in countries like Sudan, Algeria and Turkey. Treasury official Brian Nelson said not acting against Hamas and its terrorism is a disservice to the Palestinian people. The United Nations Secretary General said yesterday that Israeli airstrikes and the blockade of Gaza represent collective punishment of the Palestinian people and called for an immediate ceasefire. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest U.S. response to Israel's war with the Hamas terror group. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Israel's actions in response to the unprecedented terror attack on Israelis, including women and children, have violated international law. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby addressed the talk of a ceasefire. We're going to continue to make sure Israel has the tools and the capabilities that they need to defend themselves. And as I think you've heard us say, um, a ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas. Kirby also extended sympathies to the family of Omer Balva, an Israeli-American dual citizen from Rockville, Maryland. The IDF soldier was killed on Monday at Israel's northern border by anti-tank missile fire. Certainly offer our deepest condolences to the family. That's, that's news no, no mom and dad ever want to get. Um, I don't have any communication to, to speak to one way or the other, but again, our, our, our thoughts and prayers go to the family. Kirby also discussed Tuesday the possibility of evacuating Americans from the Middle East in case the Israel-Hamas war spreads into a broad regional conflict. It would be imprudent and irresponsible if we didn't have folks thinking through a broad range of contingencies and possibilities, and, um, and, uh, and certainly evacuations are, are one of those things. But Kirby stressed there are currently no active efforts to evacuate Americans from the region beyond charter flights out of Israel. The National Security Council spokesman also said the U.S. is deeply concerned by the potential for future attacks on American troops. He estimated there had been around a dozen such attacks over the last several days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Tuesday that 33 Americans have been confirmed dead after the Hamas terror attack on Israel on October 7th. 
10 Americans are still missing. An unknown number of them are presumed to be held hostage in Gaza. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Israel is rejecting a UN call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And the Israeli foreign minister is calling for the resignation of the UN Secretary General over comments he made. Israel's foreign minister Eli Cohen told the UN Security Council that the war is not just Israel's, but a war of the free world. Cohen said, quote, how can you agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence? Cohen also canceled a scheduled meeting with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in protest over statements he made. Guterres said the Hamas attacks did not exist in a vacuum. And next, we want to speak about the interests at play in the Israel-Hamas war. We're bringing in Gregory Copley, the president of the International Strategic Studies Association. He says that the Chinese Communist Party is the ultimate beneficiary. Good morning, Gregory. Good to have you as always. Now, first, can you please elaborate on why they are the ultimate beneficiary? Well, the Communist Party of China needs to keep its adversaries in the Indo-Pacific to a minimum, so it needs to make sure that the great powers, the United States, the United Kingdom and other Europeans are preoccupied with conflicts and uh, priorities in the Euro-Atlantic sphere. Uh, The Communist Party of China and the People's Liberation Army are well aware that the United States can no longer sustain its former capacity of dealing with two and a half simultaneous wars around the world, major wars. The United States can deal with perhaps one, one and a half wars. It's been marginally preoccupied uh, and very expensive with the very expensive war in the Ukraine uh, and now is is, uh, occupied with the war in the Middle East. Uh, So basically it's keeping uh, great strategic U.S. forces out of the Indo-Pacific. And there's no question that uh, the People's Republic of China uh, was aware of what was going on with the, the Gaza breakout and supported it. Uh, it. It was where, through its its uh, colleagues in Turkey and in the in Iran, for example. So basically, uh, the the PRC wants to keep the Western mm. forces in the Euro-Atlantic space and out of the Indo-Pacific. Right. Uh, for now, two things to unpack here. One we will touch on later. Uh, for now, have we been seeing then any opportunistic moves from China? Uh, yes, I think so. I, I think, uh, uh, well, frankly, this this war itself is one of those. Uh, the, the reality is that this breakout by Hamas was not uh, just a coincidental one. It was planned in great depth. Uh, it's the most professional and extensive uh, breakout we've seen from Hamas ever. Uh, it uh, does have some local motives, like the 50th anniversary of the October 1973 war, and the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, was building a rapprochement and normalization with Israel, and both of these factors were essentially bypassing the Palestinians. They were becoming irrelevant in the Middle East. They, they needed to do something. The question is, why did this uh, war occur with the brutality that it did uh, to dramatically draw in the world? Uh, there's no question that the level of hostility and the brutality, visible brutality, of Hamas in this conflict was done deliberately and yet with no uh, real follow-on capacity by Hamas. There, there was, this was bound to peter out. It was bound to result in massive Ita- uh, Israeli retaliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was unlikely 
that Iran itself would risk direct involvement uh, at this stage, even by ordering Hamas uh, to be supported by Hezbollah, which is uh, Iranian-controlled in uh, in the Lebanon Valley to the north of Israel. Uh, so the reality is that uh, this was very opportunistically exploited by uh, by the People's Republic of China, just as the uh, uh, Ukraine war was done. In fact, in March uh, 2022, I, I wrote a piece, which we discussed, I think, on this channel, that uh, the Ukraine war saved the Communist Party of China because it enabled the, the People's Republic of China to drag Russia in to support it with cheap food and cheap energy and the like, and uh, get the People's Republic of China away from its dependence, its food dependency on the United States. So uh, everything which is being done by uh, Beijing is ex deliberately exploiting this sort of situation. The question is uh, whether the uh, U.S. military, as opposed to the White House, is taking the bait. Uh, clearly, the U.S. armed forces are preparing for conflict in the Indo-Pacific and are not being deterred by these wars in Europe. And, and in the Mediterranean. Uh, however, they are being debilitated by the fact that the US uh, government at the White House level is spending literally hundreds of billions of dollars and, and, and sending away uh, readiness capabilities to fight these wars in Europe and the Mediterranean. Right. So one more thing before we go, I just wanted to get this question in to clarify. So did you, when you say that China um, has a role to play in all of this and it was opportunistic, is it, um, would you be saying that uh, they were complicit in the start of this war and the attacks? I know that you had a piece that you wrote that you say multiple governments were aware and, aware and complicit. Would China be one of them and how actively, what, how big was the role? Well, we can't determine the full extent of it, but we know that uh, this war uh, was not uh, accidental. It didn't start uh, with any short-term planning. It had a lot of external help, a lot of external logistical support. Some of this came from Iran. Some of it came from Turkey. It was done with the complete knowledge, absolutely, uh, of the People's Republic of China and their intelligence services. The question is, uh, did they fund it? Uh, did they help plan it? Did they sponsor it. They certainly encouraged it, that's for sure. Mm, I see. Thank you so much for your in-depth analysis as, as usual. Gregory Copley, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. China has removed its defense minister from office. According to Chinese state media, General Li Shangfu was replaced just seven months after taking office. Li has been out of public view for almost two months. No further information was given on his whereabouts or reasons for a removal. Li is the second senior Chinese official to disappear this year. Former Foreign Minister Qin Gang was removed from office in July, also with no explanation offered. Li became defense minister during a cabinet reshuffle in March. He has not been seen since giving a speech on August 29th. Li is currently under U.S. sanctions in relation to his overseeing weapon purchases from Russia and barred from entering the country. There is no indication that the disappearances of Qin and Li signal a change in China's foreign or defense policies, but questions have been raised about the resilience of regime leader Xi Jinping's circle of power. As defense minister, Li mostly handled military diplomacy and didn't hold command responsibilities over combat operations. A replacement has not yet been named. 
Coming up, Representative Mike Johnson is the latest to make a play for the Speaker's chair. We have more on the candidate that House members will vote on later today. The China-Mexican drug cartel precursor is the subject of a Senate caucus. What you need to know coming up. Should the homeless have a right to a public place to sleep? An appeals court says so, but there's a legal battle against that ruling. We hear why from one of the attorneys involved. Welcome back. House Republicans have picked Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana as their new speaker nominee. This after Representative Emmer dropped his bid. Here's a congressman reacting to his nomination. America is the last best hope of man on the earth. Abraham Lincoln said it. Ronald Reagan used to remind us all the time. And we're here to remind you of that again. We're going to restore your trust in what we do here. You're going to see a new form of government, and we are going to move this quickly. This group here is ready to govern, and we're going to govern well. We're going to do what's right by the people. And I believe the people are going to reward that next year. But we have a lot of big priorities ahead of us right now. The world is on fire. We stand with our ally, Israel. Johnson is a conservative constitutional law attorney. He builds himself as a bridge builder between the various Republican factions. The Northwest Louisiana district he represents is one of the poorest in the country. Right now, it's unclear if Johnson can secure the 217 votes needed. Republicans are under intense pressure to pick a new speaker. It's been three weeks since House members ousted Congressman Kevin McCarthy in a historic vote. And right now, the House cannot conduct any business without a speaker. The House will hold a speaker vote today at noon. Majority Whip Tom Emmer's short-lived House speaker candidacy was over in a matter of hours. Earlier, I spoke with Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, about the recent guilty plea made by former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis. Well, anytime you have a plea deal, there's always uh, charges that are not uh, followed through. And I think the RICO charge was just basically a bargaining chip uh, in the mix here. And uh, But nevertheless, uh, Jenna Ellis did plead guilty to uh, one felony count. That's a serious count of aiding and abetting, giving false statements to the Georgia Senate, along with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so th that's the key issue here. And the question is, you know, Rudy Giuliani will now be implicated because she has agreed to testify about other people involved in the uh, election as much as she knows about it. So walk us through the process that a prosecutor would go through here. Wouldn't it be better to pursue RICO charge and, and get this to stick against Ellis and others as opposed to getting plea deals? Or is it better for them to start yeah. just accumulating these guilty pleas? Well, I think it's a, a strategic decision to start getting the guilty pleas. As you know, uh, we have now three guilty pleas from three attorneys, uh, Sidney Powell, Ken Cheesebro, and, and now uh, Jenna Ellis. But the key factor here is uh, without the RICO charge, the RICO charge was to connect them all together with the 18 other defendants, including Donald Trump. And since uh, that wasn't found uh, to be uh, a wrongful conduct here, uh, they will have to go to trial to prove that unless somebody does 
plead guilty to a RICO charge, but I don't see that happening. So keep in mind uh, what she pled guilty to has nothing whatsoever to do with Donald Trump. He, he wasn't mentioned in the plea or in the charge that was against uh, Jenna, Jenna Ellis. More than 100,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. over the last 12 months. Where are these drugs coming from? The precursor chemicals used to make synthetic drugs was the topic of a Senate hearing yesterday. Here's the story. The Senate Caucus on International Narcotics Control held a hearing yesterday called the Precursor Pipeline. This refers to a pipeline of chemicals between China and Mexico used to make narcotics that end up in the U.S. and killing tens of thousands. Precursor chemicals are building blocks used to manufacture fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. They're difficult to regulate because they're often perfectly legal for certain uses. Chinese chemical suppliers and Mexican drug cartels exploit the situation. Rather than supplying, for instance, fentanyl directly to the U.S. as they once did, Chinese chemical companies now supply the precursor chemicals to Mexican cartels and transnational criminal organizations. The cartels then use their own chemists to manufacture the fentanyl to distribute to victims in the United States. Overdose deaths in America can be attributed to this precursor pipeline. In the last 12 months, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported over 112,000 drug overdose deaths. One State Department official described the State Department's plan to address this problem. And the State Department is uh, focused on three main areas, sorry, four main areas. One, reducing the diversion of precursors used in the illicit manufacturing of synthetic drugs, strengthening the ability of law enforcement officials to detect and interdict precursors, targeting online sales and financial flows that evolve from precursors, and expanding partnerships with private companies which are used unwittingly as platforms for the sale and trafficking of precursors. A DEA official reports on the massive numbers of fentanyl pills seized so far this year. Most of the fake pills confiscated have a deadly surprise for victims. So far in 2023, DEA has seized more than 65 million fake pills and 10,000 pounds of fentanyl powder. That's approximately 300 million deadly doses of fentanyl taken off American streets. Even more concerning is now seven out of 10 fake pills contain a potentially lethal dose, dose of fentanyl. Unfortunately, these operations also show that fentanyl precursors are easily bought online and via social media. Drug overdoses are one of the leading causes of death, especially for American youth. The Senate Caucus on International Narcotics Control is not only making people aware of the problem, they're coordinating efforts between government agencies to eradicate this enormous problem. Efforts to tackle homelessness in cities like L.A., Seattle, and Phoenix are said to be hampered by the court system. We delve into the specifics of this with Mark Miller, a senior attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation and former chief of staff to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Mark Miller, thanks for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to join you, Kevin. How have the decisions by the Ninth Circuit impacted the ability to get the homelessness crisis impacting cities across the western United States under control? The Ninth Circuit has made it very difficult for local elected officials to deal with the homeless crisis that we're seeing all across the Western United States. We're seeing, as you know, Kevin, across the country, but especially in the West. And the federal appeals courts have interfered with local elected officials from doing their job to protect the public and protect property rights. So some are saying that the Ninth Circuit is basically saying that 
there is a right of these homeless to have a public place to sleep. And if the, the cities can't provide that, then they can just sleep on the streets without being fined. So do you think that this is a constructive solution here? I do not think so, and neither Specific Legal Foundation or the California Business Properties Association that I represent before the U.S. Supreme Court. We're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and tell the federal Ninth Circuit that it's gone too far, that in fact courts are supposed to protect constitutional rights, but the constitutional rights at issue here are the property rights of the business owners that Pacific Legal represents and the homeowners or apartment owners or condo owners who live in the cities that are looking at these homeless encampments where the federal courts have said and the Ninth Circuit has said you can't arrest them and you can't even find those homeless unless you have enough public beds for them. Well, in some of our bigger cities, as you know, Kevin, we're looking at thousands of homeless people. It is entirely unrealistic to say that those individuals have a right to sleep. If that's what they have and local officials can't do anything about it, then there's all sorts of other rights that federal courts would be happy to invent. The U.S. Supreme Court will have to step in here and reign in the Ninth Circuit. Something definitely needs to be done to help these people. I mean, we see feces, needles laying on the streets. What are the business owners telling you? Well, the business owners are going out of business. As you said, feces, defecation, urination, rampant crime, violence, it's, it's dangerous to be in many of our inner cities. We've all seen the videos from San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, Phoenix. And some federal judges at the trial court level are trying to get the local elected officials to deal with it. But really, I can kind of empathize with those local officials because they're throwing up their hands and saying that if they try to deal with it, they'll get sued. And they'll get sued because of that Ninth Circuit decision that you mentioned. There's two of them, really. There's a case called City of Boise and another case called Grants Pass. Supreme Court has been asked to look at that Grants Pass case, which is out of Oregon, and step in, uh, agree to hear it, and then hopefully later this year or perhaps early next year, uh, say that local elected officials are the ones who are supposed to fix the homeless problem and address the mental illness and the drug addiction, not just arrest them, but get those people who are Americans too, get them some help, the help they desperately need. Right, Mark Miller at the Pacific Legal Foundation, thank you for your time. Thank you, Kevin. Incredibly complex issue. Yeah, it is a delicate balance to get the homeless the resources they need and shelters if they want it, while also protecting businesses from losing business because these encampments are right outside their storefronts. Right. All right, we have to wrap up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our news broadcast at uh, News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.